the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third or second half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is uh, an attorney uh, and um, author of a new book that's being described as an action-packed legal thriller called Deadly Division. His name is Nathaniel Sizemore. He joins me by phone. Hi, Nathaniel. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. You know, I remember asking uh, David Baldacci. He started out as an attorney and um, ended up writing many, many, many bestsellers. And I asked him which he liked more, writing or lawyering. <laughs> and so I posed the same question to you. Oh, man, that's a tough one. Well, I'll, uh, I'll just take whatever Baldacci said. That's probably a good answer. 
<laughs> well, he he actually said he liked writing considerably more than he did lawyering. But I wanted to ask you, because you've been a lawyer in the D.C. area, and and this uh, this thriller. Um, starts in the circles of Washington, D.C., and, and heads to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Um, how much has your experience as a lawyer in D.C. informed this book? Yeah, that's a great question. So, And, and I'll answer, um, I'll make it a two-part question and, and uh, expand on your first question as well. So, uh, I would say that lawyers are writers by nature, and uh, for those of us who have a creative uh, bug that needs to get out, sometimes a legal brief uh, doesn't always do it. Uh, we tend to be analytical, we tend to be um, chatty, and uh, we tend to be writers by nature. So I, uh, I just had this creative element to my writing that... Uh, I, I really wanted to develop. And so in Washington, one thing that I gained a lot of exposure to are the nuances of the legal system, uh, both state and federal. In law school, you learn how to be a lawyer. And uh, when you're sitting in the chair, uh, you, you learn how to be a lawyer in that firm, in that practice group, in the jurisdiction that you're practicing in. So. Uh, I think that the um, uh, the simple answer to your question is my time in D.C. was absolutely instrumental in me having a understanding of the legal system in order to write a um, uh, hopefully compelling legal thriller. And the character David uh, Stoneman runs into his his big challenge starts right within the firm is. Is that based on any near misses you had in practice? So uh, I've gotten that question before. And, and the other question I get is, is David Stoneman based on me? And the answer is no. Uh, and what's funny is when you sit down to write something like this, the natural tendency that you have to fight is to make the lead protagonist yourself. Um, but no, I, I, I try to make my characters cooler than me, and um, uh, my experience in the law firm uh, was overwhelmingly positive, uh, very thankful for the opportunity. But I will tell you that um, uh, some elements of some of the characters, some of the personalities uh, for the different lawyers in the, uh, in the book uh, weren't... weren't um, uh, weren't based on anyone specifically, but certain things that maybe I saw, observed, experienced in my time in in Washington. You know, I'm I'm curious. I always ask writers. I'm I'm curious about the creative process. Um, for you, Nathaniel, do you come up with with characters and then? develop a story of things that might happen to them or do you have the story in mind first and then cast it with characters yeah that's a great question tom so the the word i would describe to use how i developed this story is inartful uh it was about a decade ago it was around <laughs> 2010 
I was not yet uh, a graduate of law school. I was on vacation with my family, actually, in South Carolina, and I couldn't sleep. I had an idea for a story. So I opened my laptop, and I began typing, and basically I came up with a few pages of, of nonsense, but a, but a basic start to a story. And so what I realized that I had to do for my creative process is I needed some kind of roadmap, a guide on how I wanted the story to unfold. Um, that to me was always a comfort blanket as I sat down to write. So I wrote a basic storyboard where I would list key characters that I thought would be interesting to include in the story. And then I would actually uh, summarize each chapter, almost like a roadmap. And what's really interesting, Tom, is that the final version of my story is probably only 50% of my original storyboard. And so what I started in 2010, as life got busy, I graduated from law school and started my practice. I, uh, the, the manuscript never got finished. In fact, it was only about 10 to 20% done. And uh, COVID-19 gave everybody some unanticipated mandatory downtime. And I thought, well, uh, I can't take my kids to the zoo. I can't go out for dinner. So uh, I'm going to sit down and be deliberate about finishing this manuscript. And that's how it got made. You know, that's fascinating because I've talked to some very successful writers who were lamenting the fact that they didn't use the time that things were shut down and we were in quarantine um, to get more work done. You know, they, they kind of had that deer in the headlights thing going on, like a lot of us did. Um, but kudos to you for, for sitting down and saying, you know what, I'm going to use this time. Well, well, thank you. And I'll tell you, I watched a number, uh, to be candid, I watched a number of episodes of Downton Abbey <laughs> first. <laughs> that was first. And then I thought, well, I, I don't want to be the guy who binge watches every show on Netflix. So that's when I, I, I really, I'll tell you, that's the thing, Tom. Um, if you look at it as a part-time job, but a fun, creative, and fulfilling one, that uh, is my biggest recommendation to writers because when you're 100 pages into a Microsoft Word document and you've got you know, another 70 or 80 pages to go, uh, the task at times can seem daunting. But I was pretty deliberate every day or two to sit down and try to write a chapter. And I really used Dan Brown's chapter length as a guide. About 1,100 words per chapter is what I felt uh, would, would serve my story well. You know, that's interesting that you mentioned Dan Brown I, and, and Netflix, practically the same sentence, Nathaniel, because I've been watching some uh, uh, film adaptations of Dan Brown's work um, on, on my uh, streaming server. Um, but, but it also raises a question, who are some of the writers that, that inspire you? Yeah, so on the, on the fiction side, the, the two that come to mind immediately uh, are, are Dan Brown and John Grisham. Um, I think The Firm, uh, I, I saw that when I was younger, um, and the, the, just the, the storylines of the Grisham novels uh, speak to me as an attorney, and I really love the Dan Brown. I got hooked, uh, like most people, with The Da Vinci Code and then went back and read some of the other ones, Deception Point. Uh, Digital Fortress, and, and I really like his, I like his converging storylines. 
I like his short chapters, and I like the fact that you can put his book uh, in a briefcase and read a couple chapters at lunch and then put it down and then race home to read a couple more chapters. Uh, so I would say those two. And then David Baldacci's story of uh, converting from a D.C. litigator uh, to a uh, novelist, I think, was very compelling and inspiring as well. You know, it's funny uh, when you talk about John Grisham, because uh, I've got a bone to pick with David Baldacci. He's been on the show several times, and, and in one of those times, he was talking about Grish. He kept talking about Grish and how he and Grish went and did this and went and did that. And I told him, I said, you know, John Grisham's never been on the show. And he said, well, I have to talk to him. I think he'd like it. <laughs> and, I, and I never heard any more about it. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm still waiting to get, you know, contacted by somebody from uh, Grisha's circle. And well, well, I'll tell you what, Tom, I sent uh, John Grisham a copy of my book, too, uh, and, and a few other Hollywood names. You know, you mentioned, I, I, I just I just say go for it. Uh, what the, You know, the, um, the only thing to lose is maybe you get a, a, a no or a no thank you, and so I, I sent a few of my copies uh, of my book out to Hollywood. I sent one to John Grisham. Uh, and, uh, and, and I really would love to pick his brain as, you know, one of the superstars in the genre. And I think those guys, uh, Dan Brown and Baldacci and Grisham, they really caused me, I, I wanted the book to be entertaining and thought-provoking. One of the things I really love about Dan Brown is he has the fact section in the, in the front of the book, uh, which talks about uh, elements of truth. Uh, organizations that are real, issues that are real and relevant. And so I tried to replicate that concept in my book as well. I, I'm gonna t- I have a break coming up in about a minute or, or so. Um, can you stick around so we can talk some more? I want to dig uh, more into your book and some of the research that went into it. Would love to. Um, my guest is uh, Nathan- uh, Nathaniel Sizemore, author of deadly division and i'm gonna i'm gonna share before we go to break a, a very quick baldacci story that he told on my show he uh was at a book event at a washington dc bookstore when barack obama and his daughters came in and the manager of the store was showing the president around he was president at the time and he brings him over and introduces him to Baldacci. He said, you know, Mr. President, this is David Baldacci. And the president says to David Baldacci, wow, you're famous. <laughs> and Baldacci said it was, it was so surreal having him say that, you know, to, to Baldacci. Oh, oh yeah. And, and I, and I got to tell you, you know, um, being new, uh, being a new novelist, I'm really excited. I'd love to to, to have ten minutes with Baldacci or Grisham or Dan Brown, and um, you know, really learn more about how they refined their craft. I, I'm I'm uh, the new guy on the block, if you will, and excited to grow and develop in the space. Well, as I mentioned, I have to take a short break here, Nathaniel, but I do want to talk some more about your writing and your book, and. Uh, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. And if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. But we'll talk more about Deadly Division with Nathaniel Sizemore uh, right after this. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away From Kenneth. From Louis. Martelia Newman. From Marisha. Bertrand. <laughs> and the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation about a new action-packed legal thriller called Deadly Division by Nathaniel Sizemore, who joins me by phone. Nathaniel, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. No, my pleasure, Tom. Um, I was asking you in the last segment a little bit about how much your experiences as uh, a lawyer in the D.C. area informed your book, but... Um, how much research goes into putting together a book like this? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I, I uh, took a significant amount of time to make sure that it was as accurate as possible, uh, both procedurally uh, and otherwise. I wanted to make sure uh, that the venues that I mentioned uh, were uh, accurate and many of the venues that I mentioned in the book, uh, the Georgetown Club, Congressional Country Club, the West Conference Room of the U.S. Supreme Court building, I- I've, I've been to those places. So uh, I-, I wrote from experience, but I also made sure that I-, that I did my homework to make it as accurate as possible and as compelling as possible for the reader to, to think, could this really be happening? And you mentioned in the in the uh, earlier segment that we did um, that you storyboarded this book over several years before you took advantage of the of the pandemic and the quarantine to sit down and actually finish the book. Um, but storyboarding is generally associated with filmmaking. Do you do you see this story the way you would see it? Uh, in a film or television adaptation? I am so happy you asked that question, Tom, because I am a cinephile at heart. I have been watching movies, and I love thriller (laughs) movies, and I'll tell you this, uh, so um, part of my creative process is I actually would see the scene in my mind as it would be in a movie, and then would write that scene. And I would, uh, it, it is on my bucket list, Definitely in the top five of my bucket list if, if this book would be made into a major motion picture. And I must say, I did send it off to a few notable names in Hollywood with a handwritten note asking them to consider just that. I think it would make a great movie, and uh, it would be one that I would like to watch, which is why I was excited to write it. Who, who do you see as David Stoneman? <laughs> That's a great question, and I've thought about it. I'm sure you have. I, I have. So I think Zac Efron would make an excellent David Stoneman. Really? Do, do, do you have Do you have any thoughts on who you think would make a great uh, Stoneman in your mind? Um, well, 
you know, it's it's hard after the conversation we've had not to think of Tom Cruise, but yeah, he would be another good one. I, you know, I got to tell you, you can't go wrong with with Tom Cruise. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Mission Impossible franchise, and he's definitely got the action credentials to back that up. But you know, David Stoneman is a is a 30 year old uh, hotshot lawyer who is trying to you know climb the corporate ladder and he's got this this confidence but also an element of inexperience as to how the world works and he gets caught up in this web of uh what i'll call covert activities that go way above his pay grade and so uh in my head i i saw uh i i saw zach efron as being a good option but i will tell you this i'd be thrilled to hear other options maybe some of the viewers um, or or uh, some other folks would weigh in. I'd be very open to suggestions. When you were um, in in various aspects of your law practice, in in different cases that you had, did you imagine things outside of what was going on? in real life, uh, you know, picturing a case that you had, you know, turning into this kind of uh, fast-paced life-and-death scenario? Absolutely, Tom. That's where the magic begins, and that's that's what's uh, a lot of fun about this, I think, both for the writer and the readers, is they can create uh, my version of David Stoneman, uh, and Gregory Thomas III and Senator Smythe may be a little bit different than yours, and that's where the the, the creativity comes in. But uh, I'll tell you, one of the best, in my opinion, one of the best legal movie scenes is uh, the interaction between Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise and A Few Good Men. Oh, of course. I, I can tell you I have never experienced anything like that in my practice, um, I, I don't want to disappoint the readers that not every trial ends with a, uh, a uh, gasp moment in the courtroom. But absolutely, I think that uh, you, you wonder. The, the thing that I wanted to achieve with this is, number one, I wanted it to be entertaining, and I wanted it to be thought-provoking. You mean all those episodes of Perry Mason I watched, and in real life, the killer never just stands up in the gallery and admits it? Well, I, you know, I'm partial, <laughs> to, Matt, I'm partial to Matlock, but uh, we can use Perry Mason, and the answer is usually not. Now, my wife, uh, I, I worked uh, as a litigator uh, in a large firm in Washington, but my wife is actually a prosecutor. Uh, and and has been since she came out of law school, so she probably has some better stories on the criminal side than I do. But uh, let me ask you this, Tom. I'm always curious to know what else about uh, the book do you did did you find compelling? What really grabbed your attention? Um, I I think just the uh, the the connection with the uh, Southern Baptist minister. Okay, you like Tommy Felton. Well, I I just thought it was an interesting choice. And why is that? Um, I I don't know. Maybe maybe it's it's some deep seated church and state thing with me. Okay. Well, I I, I think so. I know a pastor Tommy, who's a Southern uh, pastor in Kentucky, 
that's where the inspiration for the name came. And I spent, uh, I went to college in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and, uh, and one of our uh, favorite spots is right outside of Charleston. So I kind of, when I created my character, I kind of um, meshed those people and concepts into Tommy Felton. And actually, it's been interesting because I always ask people who read it and, and um, you know, talk to me about the book. And uh, Tommy Felton is generally one of, the, one of the fan favorites. I think it's because he goes through so much that they get connected to him, and then he has this world-changing thing that happens to him, and he gets pushed down this uh, storyline that maybe he didn't anticipate. Nathaniel, is Deadly Division a one-off, or do you think we'll uh, see the further adventures of David Stoneman coming down the pike? Well, Tom, I, if, if you ask David Baldacci the question on his first book, uh, which I... Um, believe was what was it executive power absolute power absolute power uh he would say absolutely not the last book i've kind of caught the bug and actually i was sitting down last night to continue working on the manuscript of the sequel oh good for you i you know it's it's funny um you mentioned absolute power because i was so thrilled the first time uh that that i had david on the show um because it's one of my favorite movies and this was his his first successful book and it you know gets turned into this blockbuster with clint eastwood and so on and uh, and i asked him at the time i said well that means people return your calls now don't they <laughs> And then he laughed and said, yeah, they, they kind of do. And it was a thrill to have that that first book made into, you know, such a, a great movie. Um, but I ask him often, because that book was a one-off, um, if uh, Luther's ever going to make a comeback. Well, I tell you, you can't go wrong with Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman. Uh, so, so uh, you know, I think that, I mean, that was a, a fantastic story. Uh, but, no, I always saw this actually as a trilogy. And that's the first time I've said that in a public forum. So, yes, I'm working on the sequel, but I actually, when I sat down to really round out the story, I think some really compelling things happen in, um, in book one. Uh, I, I, I wrote it to be the type of book that I would like to read, a thriller to keep you on your seat. And, and, and frankly, I'll let the readers decide. And and uh, and it's interesting that you think of it as a, a a trilogy possibly because I I ask writers often Nathaniel when you get into a series or a trilogy did you know it when you started or did you get to the end of the first book and go but wait there's more well you know I, I think lawyers are sales people <laughs> and there's always <laughs> there's always more <laughs> there's always more we, we certainly always have more to say um, and that's what I want to create in the book is I, I want um, you know this this kind of shows different aspects of, of lawyers especially in a in a uh, big city setting like Washington DC uh, the book begs the questions what if what if this could really be happening? What if 
uh, there is a David Stoneman type of personality out there. What if he is dealing with these sort of things that he's that he is experiencing at his firm and and that's really one that I wanted to create uh, to to really compel the readers to ask themselves the question so the story stays with them long after they're finished reading. You know, I've been trying to stay away from from spoiler alerts, but I, I want to get back to the uh, the research question I asked you earlier, Nathaniel. What were some of the aspects of the book that needed to to that you needed to to borrow some expertise to make sure you were accurate about? Yeah, so um, I, I will tell you without um, being mindful of not spoiling anything. Uh, there were certain procedural requirements. Uh, there is a lawsuit in the case. Uh, it's filed in federal court in Washington, D.C., and I really spent time, believe it or not, Tom, digging through the local rules of the court. And so uh, some of the programs mentioned in the book for, related to the court are real, uh, and I tried to be as accurate as possible with some of the laws and the procedural elements of the story. I also tried uh, to paint a decent picture when I explained, for example, how uh, certain legislative items were created when my character was explaining that. I, I really wanted to make sure that that was as accurate as possible while um, not stalling the momentum of the story. I remember um, asking uh, Mary Higgins Clark um, she had a book that had a bunch of text stuff in it and, and before she passed away. And she admitted to being kind of a Luddite when it came to technology. And I said, how do you, how do you research this stuff, you know, so you get it right in the books? And she said, oh, I've got a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I had a guy. <laughs> I wish I had a guy. I I had to be the guy, and then I think that visits and interviews and internet research all add to the quality experience for the reader. What's really fun? What was really fun is um, I've been to Martin's Tavern in Georgetown. I've sat in the JFK proposal booth. Um, I, I've uh, eaten at the Georgetown Club. Been in the West Conference Room of the U.S. Supreme Court Building. And so uh, what I did for many of those things is I would pull old pictures. Uh, when I was there, I had, I, was, I had the good fortune to be sworn in uh, to, the, to uh, be a member of the Bar of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, we were, our waiting room was the West Conference Room uh, in the Supreme Court building. Took a lot of pictures, and I pulled those pictures out, dusted them off, and tried to make it as accurate as possible. Um, all with the goal of adding uh, to the experience for the reader. I, I want the reader to feel like they're in the room with me. You said uh, a few minutes ago, or maybe it was in the earlier segment, that you storyboarded this, uh, this book, and, and so you were working from kind of an outline. Um, will you continue to do that or will your your writing process have changed being informed by the completion of this book yeah so um like any writers i'd like to improve continue to improve um uh, the goal for the sequel is to uh, draw on the experiences and the basic storyline uh to to make the second book um maybe even more compelling 
uh, I'll tell you that um, feedback from the readers has been absolutely invaluable. I actually had beta readers read the book, and I will have beta before it was even a finished manuscript to get that feedback, and they came uh, forward with some invaluable insight. Also, Amazon reviews uh, have been a great source of reader feedback and guidance on how to continue to improve to improve the writing. And the other thing I'll mention too is I really want to write books that you don't have to read the first one to read the second one. So I'm trying to write the second one to where if you if you missed the first book, uh, you don't have to have read it uh, to to experience um, the storyline, and you can always go back and read Deadly Division. Yeah, I was going to ask if you were you know if there were. Uh, if you anticipated cliffhangers in uh, in the books, if they in fact uh, are a trilogy, well, I, I, would it be a thriller novel if if they were absent, Tom? They they have to be there. That's 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 the most fun part, I think, for the reader and the writer is um, those cliffhangers at the end of the chapter where you, where you uh, it's a gotcha concept where you have to turn the page and you know the. Your your um, your coffee's in the Keurig, getting cold, but you just have to read one more chapter. That was the goal here. Well, I meant from book to book. Oh, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's um, they are meant to be individual, but uh, connected is the word. Connected together to really maximize the uh, the holistic book one two three storyline from soup to nuts. So for those who pick up the trilogy and invest the time to read the trilogy, hopefully it'll be entertaining and thought-provoking, uh, and um, that's the goal. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes absolute sense, um, and, and that's kind of what I was getting at. So there, there is an overreaching arc in the, in the trilogy. There, there is, and I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret, Tom. Uh, I really like Easter eggs. I like it. I like them in movies. I like them. I, I really love to go back and say, oh, it was in front of me. The breadcrumbs were in front of me the whole time. And now I see it. I love I love stories like that. So, uh, yes, there are breadcrumbs in book one that will become very relevant in book two. You know, um, it's it's funny you say that. One of my favorite moments from a movie, and I caught it in the theater the first time I saw Back to the Future. And in the scene where um, Marty McFly goes back in time, uh, Doc Brown has just told him that this mall they're at, the Twin Pine Mall, um, was built on the site of a farm, and there was this nutty old farmer that was trying to mate two pine trees and that's why the mall was called twin pine mall and so marty goes back in time and the time machine the delorean runs down one of the farmer's pine trees and then when he comes back to present time there's a sign by the the drive into the mall that says lone pine mall <laughs> oh, I didn't catch. I, you know, I, I got to tell you, that's a, that's a good catch. I love those types of Easter eggs. I I uh, laughed out loud when I saw it. So I, I I'm I'm a fan of Easter eggs too. I guess is what I'm saying, Nathaniel. 
Oh, you know, I, I'm right there with you, and, and that's um, I, well, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there's some there's some twists and turns uh, here, and if you go back and think about it, uh, you may have guessed it if you were looking for it, and that's that's fun for me. I love I love those types of movies for the reader, the the whodunits where it, where the uh, breadcrumbs were sprinkled. It really compels the reader to uh, to keep reading and draws them in, in in a really fun way. So with that, with that, I actually have a question for you, Tom. What else do you think about the book that your readers need to know, in your opinion? I'm, I'm curious. Oh, I, I think if, if I were to, to make a comment, I'd say don't wait for the movie to come out. <laughs> <laughs> I love Tom Cruise calls, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much. I'm I'm always eager for feedback, and the book was written as the type of book and story that I would really enjoy. And um, you know, I think the other thing too, I want this to inspire folks, uh, Tom. I, I really, you know, I'm I'm a lawyer from Cincinnati, a work, who now works in my family's business. I've I've got a lovely wife and and two darling children. And, um, you know, part of the thing, I dedicated uh, the book in part to my two girls because I think that part of it is just going for it. Um, I didn't have any formal narrative training, um, story writing training. I always kind of had a propensity toward writing. I enjoyed it. I found it fulfilling. And so to those out there who are on the edge, who think that they may want to do something like this, uh, I would say sit down and, and write a short story. And it doesn't have to see the light of day, but I will tell you that just putting pen to paper, if you will, is a, is a really creative process. It, it allows you to be reflective, thoughtful, and, and who knows? You may just come up with the next big thing. Well, Nathaniel, we're almost out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I sure do, and, and it is on the back of the book, uh, and it is www.nathaniel-sizemore.com. That's N-A-T-H-A-N-I-E-L-S-I-Z-E-M-O-R-E.com, and you can, and you can uh, purchase the book on Amazon in paperback or Kindle. Um, how, how long are we going to have to wait for the further adventure uh, adventures of David Stoneman? Well, I think that depends on the readers. I also think that depends on my wife's schedule for me over the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I will tell you, I, I do not want to wait long. Well, David, thank you so much for uh, spending this time with me this morning. Good luck with the book and the future books. And uh, I, I guess keep up the good work. Keep inspiring people. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate the time today. And um, I, I hope all your readers uh, go out and buy the book. It'll make a, an outstanding stocking stuffer around the holidays. And if readers have any questions, uh, you have my email. Feel free to, to share it. Uh, and I'm happy to answer any questions uh, about the book or otherwise. Uh, I really want this to be an engaging process. So thank you again, Tom, for your time this morning. I, I really had some fun. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. And with that, we're going to take a uh, short break and uh, let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're uh, streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, 
we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. More about uh, prepping for active shooter scenarios in the next segment. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck up. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. 
Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about active shooter preparation with Doug Parisi from Safe Defend, straight ahead. But the other thing to understand is most of the time, um, the law enforcement is going to be working with the staff at the school, and they'll have keys to the building. They'll knock. They'll say, this is the police. We have keys. Everybody away from the door. Everything's safe. We're going to evacuate you. And then they should open the door and then have the students come out of the classroom. Um, so that they don't have to make entry and get surprised so the students come out slowly into the hallway and then they get evacuated from there. And so I just want you, you were right in complimenting those students because they did a phenomenal job by recognizing that something's out of place here. Yeah, it didn't sound right to them. In, in fact, there was a video of, of one of the kids saying, hey, he said, bro, I, I don't think a deputy would say bro. <laughs> and, 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 and they actually kind of talked it out and said, you know what, it doesn't seem right. And, and that's, yes, it was, it was phenomenal that the students were like that. But I think this is why the, the training is so important, because we've had to have these conversations with the staff has had to come, have, have these conversations with the students to let them know, you know, that they do have some sort of control in these situations. They don't just have to follow, you know, blindly. But they knew what to do. They knew which corners to go to and stuff like that. We'll, you also mentioned the architects or do we, the, the design of the building. One of the things we recommend strongly is whenever they're building a school, especially the elementary and middle uh, but in high schools it works too, is they need to color code buildings, uh, sorry, hallways, color code hallways, um, so that if police are responding and they know that it's 221G, they'll know that G stands for green, and the next thing you know, they're running that hallway. They look over, they see a hallway with green tile and green paint or a green stripe down the wall. They know that's the direction they need to go. Um, and, you know, so if you have blue hallways, purple hallways, red hallways, and stuff like that, and it's indicated on the notification, then all of a sudden that helps them. That's one of the things we've talked to architects about. The other thing is that everybody likes to have windows, but windows should probably be at least like eight feet off the ground, something where nobody from a hallway could actually have direct contact with somebody in that building, what we would call line of fire. Um, the other thing that we mentioned is, is like maybe having a different tile mosaic on the floor. There's something called a safer corner in every classroom or, or most classrooms, and that is that if I sit in the hallway and I try to look into that classroom, there's usually going to be one corner where I can't see exactly what's going on because of the angle. And so if I put a different tile, like, you know, in that corner, and now all of a sudden I have, say, blue tile and white tile, then the teacher just has to tell students, hey, just make sure you're hidden, you know, that you're sitting inside the blue tile, and then you're safe. And so those are some of the things that we talk about. But the most important thing that I emphasize with them is the door locks. The FBI, the FBI has shown us that um, 
Uh, no active shooter has ever breached an interior door. There's, there's one at Red Lake, Minnesota. They went to the window next to the door, but they've never breached the door. But a locked door is the best thing you can do to prevent yourself from anybody accessing you in that situation. And so what we're asking architects to start doing is make sure if you're going to spend money on the door, make sure, sorry, spend money on school, make sure you have solid wooden doors with great locks. Now, the, in, in the case of the uh, Oxford event, this week, um, there was something like a hundred calls to nine one one, and I, I'm assuming most of those were students with, you know, mobile devices, cell phones, and so on. Um, does that create a hassle for law enforcement to get that much uh, feedback on an event, or is that a good thing? Is that something? we should be applauding? Well, let's just take it in balance with what we're looking at, and that is um, what we really want is we want the people in the crisis to be focused on their own safety. So we really don't want them to have to be on the phone to 911. Um, so that's where systems like Safe Defend come in, because what, you know, just briefly what our system is is that it's located throughout the building. There's safes and different things in the classroom. And if a teacher had a crisis or anything, they would put their finger down on the, the um, activation module. The reason we use biometric fingerprints is so that students can't activate it, only teachers can. But once they do that, it immediately starts sending alarms out throughout the building so all the students know to get into the safest, you know, so the classrooms and stuff. But it's also sending text and email alerts out to dispatch, law enforcement, and all the staff so that if, let's say, this is happening in the cafeteria, law enforcement knows immediately to respond to the cafeteria, and everybody else needs to know just to avoid the cafeteria but to start that lockdown. In a large high school, someone shooting gunshots, if you're two corners away, it's going to sound like somebody hammering or something like that. So we have to break through the confusion. At Oxford, the way the students communicated the threat was running around, literally fleeing the area, going active shooter, active shooter, which is great, but we shouldn't rely on the students to have to do that. And that's why alarms come in that are so important. So when, one of the things we think about is like a fire alarm. Once you pull the fire alarm, nobody calls 911 because everybody knows the fire alarm itself means that, launch, that you know, the emergency responders have been notified. That's why schools need to have systems like these, is that once that alarm goes off, everybody hears the sirens and strobes, everybody knows law enforcement's en route, everybody can now focus on protecting themselves, making sure they're quiet, and that they're listening to what the teacher has to say. The, other, the problem from the dispatch perspective is, and you can look at, say, some of the audio tapes that came from Parkland, was the information is very poor. These are kids that are panicked, they're scared, they're, they're not speaking calmly, um, and they really don't know the school address. A lot of times they don't even know their school classroom number and things like that. So I can give you a lot of Parkland examples where there was one call that took uh, a minute and 15 seconds. The only information ever passed was, was um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The problem is, is there's 13 buildings and 45, you know, on a 45-acre campus. Imagine in Oxford if one of the teachers in the classroom had put it down and the next thing, put her finger down on a safe defense system or something like that, and the next thing you know, law enforcement, the school resource officer in the building within three to five seconds, gets a text that says classroom 212, second floor, northeast hallway, active shooter, then he's just going to start responding. So he doesn't need to wait for somebody to call 911 and then relay that information back through the radio. What it does to dispatch is it limits their ability. They're trying to gather great information, but the problem is that they're getting it in bits and pieces from multiple people, and sometimes that information is sort of incorrect because they're not asking the right questions. And that's why sometimes we get the confusion that there's multiple shooters. 
because someone might sit, the dispatcher says, where is this happening? And the person just thinks, where? And they're like, well, I'm in the gym, but this might be happening in the cafeteria. So now we get reports at the gym and the cafeteria. So there's a lot of confusion that can happen from this many phone calls. We'd be much better off just having a simple, single notification system, similar to a fire alarm, but that we apply it to active shooters. That's what Safe Defend does. The, one of the questions that, that came out was how a shooter could get a gun into a school. And the Oakland County Sheriff, Mike Bouchard, went on television uh, in, in, in response to that question, and they were not letting it be known how the gun got in specifically, but he reminded people that not all schools have metal detectors. Yeah, and met- metal detectors are very labor-intensive, and they're really not as effective as you want. I could, I mean, I'm not going to name the school, but I, we work with a school where they had an incident, and basically what happened was is that they had metal detectors, and the student just took a gun and put it in the trash can out by the track, and then when football practice happened, he walked out of the school that day, went to the trash can, got the, the, the uh, um, gun that he had put there the night before, and then he just brought it inside, and he had it inside for the next day when he confronted someone. Um, so schools are very porous. Um, I can give you a specific example from my daughter. She would go to swim practice at 5.30 in the morning. The doors were open. They had five separate lots. They had a bus, bus entrance. They had a teacher entrance. They had two student entrances, and they had a main entrance. And all of these were open from 6.30 in the morning until, like, 5 o'clock at night. But there were times where I had to go to choir events and things like that, with, or plays that would sometimes go till 10 o'clock. So schools are very porous, and it's really not a you know, this is where you start to get into it, like, do we want to lock these down like federal buildings, or do we want to understand that there's a there's a probability and a possibility, and the likelihood of this happening is so infinitesimally small that if we overreact, we're all of a sudden wasting a lot of resources on security that isn't effective in the sense of you can, even if you did have metal detectors and access controls and cameras and all that, what happens when the kids, you've just spent millions of dollars doing all those things, what happens if somebody still does get a, build- a gun into the building, and now you have the shooter inside? The FBI shows us that 86% of school shooters are students that start inside the building. And so we know this is going to happen. The question is, how do you respond to it if you have those other layers already in place? That's what schools need to focus on. More about active shooter planning and response with Doug Parisi from Safe Defend is coming up a little later in the show. TomSumnerProgram.com Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock Jingle bell swing and jingle bell ring Snowing and blowing our bushes of fun Now the jingle hop has begun Jingle, jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock Jingle bell chime and jingle bell time Jingle and jingle and beat. 
That's the jingle bell rock, jingle, 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 giddy up, jingle horse, pick up your feet, jingle around the clock, mix and mingle in a jingling beat. That's the jingling jingle bell rock, jing, jing, jingle bell rock. One more time. Come on and giddy up, jingle horse, pick up your feet and jingle around the clock. Mix and mingle in the jingling beat. That's the jingling jingle bell rock. Jing, jing, jingle bell rock. Hi, I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 